We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Cooperstown Casebook. The publisher, Thomas Dunn Books. The author, Jay Jaffe. Please join me as we welcome Jay Jaffe to the clubhouse. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. And I know you, it's kind of a welcome because you've been here before, but always in the audience. Yeah, I have. And, and it's, it's funny, there's, um, it occurs to me, uh, as I consider the first time that I came here was actually uh, a pivotal point in my life. It was May 3rd, so 2012, 2012. Uh, you had the Yankees game on. It was for left, the left field cards uh, woman, oh, yeah. Amelie. Uh, I believe Amelie Mancini. Yes, Amelie Mancini. Uh, you had the Yankees game on. That was the game that Mariano Rivera tore his ACL. Uh, Mariano <laughs> Rivera is now on the cover of my book. The next day uh, that I, that, uh, the day after that event was the same day that Sports Illustrated called me to offer me the job that I have now five years ago. Uh, so this book might not have happened without, without, without the, that look. It's just a neat little point in time where all these, th all these threads come together. So it's, kinda, it's great to be here. Uh, on that note. Oh, well, thank you. I, I did not realize that. And feel free to send my old agent uh, commission along. If you'd like. <laughs> uh, and just briefly, mainly for those of you listening on the podcast, uh, Jay Jaffe is a contributing baseball writer for SI.com. He is the founder of the Futility Infielder website, one of the oldest baseball blogs, and from 2005 to 2012 was a columnist for Baseball Prospectus. He has been a recurring guest on MLB Network's MLB Now and Clubhouse Confidential Shows and a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America since 2011. And uh, if you could, just to get us going, if you could just let us know how this particular book came to be. Okay. Uh, back in, well, I started writing about the Hall of, the Hall of Fame uh, at my blog, Futility and Figure, in 2001, the winter of 2001-2002. So I have now covered 16 Hall of Fame election cycles. Um, in 2003, late 2003, Baseball Prospectus invited me to, uh, to write something for them about the Hall of Fame because what I'd done on my own blog had uh, uh, done exponential traffic relative to my usual piddling amount. Um, <laughs> and in 2007, I was, uh, I, once I was part of BP as a, as a regular contributor, um, I was on, we were doing a book tour, and I think it was either Philadelphia or, D, or DC. Uh, I was with Christina Carl and Steve Goldman. And Christina, who uh, at the time was, I believe, uh, uh, an acquisitions editor at Brassies, uh, you know, asked me or suggested to me, like, you ought to put your Hall of Fame stuff, you know, in a book. You ought to plan on doing that. And uh, that was uh, the, that was ten years ago. Um, you know, the idea of actually doing a book was daunting at the time. Uh, in early 2010, uh, Baseball Prospectus suggested to me that we work together to do a book. Um, at that point. Uh, Soon after, you know, while while we were in those discussions, I I I'd kind of sketched out an outline. But doing the math, I was like, "There's no money in this." Um, so <laughs> I figured, you know, let's. I've got some credibility in this area. I want to do a book on the Hall of Fame, but I don't want to just do a book to do a book. I want to do it right. Um, and you know, within the next couple of years, I started getting on MLB Network. Uh, I got, you know, I I, I got to SI. Um, and uh, Jaws, my metric, got on Baseball Reference. It's on every page. So all of a sudden, 
my my profile was a lot was was a lot higher. And uh, in the uh, right after the 2014 election cycle, in, in January 2014, uh, Rob Kirkpatrick, uh, the uh, an editor at St. Martin's, uh, reached out and uh, asked me if I had any ideas for about a book. And I was like, you know what, I actually do. <laughs> and uh, over the next couple of months, I, I I pulled out that outline and you know t you know changed it up and uh, wrote uh, about 30,000 words, uh, many of which are actually in the book, uh, centered around the Ron Santo chapter. Um, and uh, that turned out to be the winning proposal. Uh, you know, we got together, we, we, we made a deal. And uh, so three and a half years since Rob reached out, um, a lot has transpired since then in my life. I've, I got engaged, uh, I got married, I became a father. Uh, my daughter is uh, 11 months old today, so uh, a lot of things kind of pushed, pushed the, uh, or stretched out the, the, the cycle of this, but uh, um, you could say it's 10 years in the making, you could say it's three and a half years in the making. Uh, it's been a long time either way. Well, congratulations on Thank all you. fronts. Thank you. And uh, the subtitle of the book, the, the Cooperstown Casebook, the subtitle, Who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, who should be in, and who should pack their plaques? Before we get into uh, War and Jaws and players, given the subtitle, just wh why, why do we care so much about the Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, I think every fan has an opinion about the Hall of Fame. Uh, many, some of them, many opinions. Your opinion might be, I don't care about the Hall of Fame. And that's fine, not everybody has to. But I think if you do care about the Hall of Fame, you've probably got somebody in mind that you feel like, oh, I really wish that person were, you know, that player were in there. Because, you know, it, it, in some ways it validates your own experience. I saw Tim Raines when he was here. I, you know, I remember how great he was. I thought he was the best. Or, you know, everybody's got that. They've got some kind of beef with the Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, and they've got a passion for it. And, uh, you know, these arguments are endless and they're renewable. Um, they come about every year. Uh, we don't necessarily have to get anywhere in, in solving them. Somebody asked me the other day when I was doing one of my media spots, and it was like, so do you think you're settling all the debates here? I'm like, hell no. That would be, that would be the worst <laughs> thing possible for, this, for the life of this book and for the Hall of Fame as if the debates were settled. I've, you know, I've hopefully armed people to debate better, but uh, I don't pretend that I've got the, you know, the, the, the final say on anything. But uh, um, no, the, the, the universal passion that people have for the Hall of Fame and the way that you know, not everybody gets to the Hall of Fame. Or if you get to the Hall of Fame, it's one of those things you might get there once every 10 years. But you, you go to the Hall of Fame in your mind's eye when you think about, um, you know, when you think about greatness, when you, when you think about Willie Mays or Babe Ruth or, you know, guys you, you didn't get to see when, when uh, you know, when, uh, uh, when they were playing because you're too young. Uh, but, you know, you're, these, these names come up in conversations. They come up on the, on the broadcast and, you know, when somebody says that Mike Trout is, is uh, uh, you know, got some Mickey Mantle, you know, the second coming of Mickey Mantle, you're, you're imagining that. And nobody, no other sports Hall of Fame uh, do people have that connection in the same way. Nobody thinks about Canton, Ohio, or Springfield, Massachusetts uh, in the same way that they do uh, Cooperstown. I mean, you just have to say the name Cooperstown, the city. That's not the Hall of Fame, but it's synonymous with it. And people know exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. And... We'll probably get into some debates, I would imagine. Uh, but if you could, a lot of our, our crowd in the clubhouse is very well versed in the history of baseball, uh, baseball literature, uh, the emotion of the game. Uh, they may not be as well versed in, uh, in Jaws mm -hmm. and War. 
So if you could kind of give us a very quick sure. dummies uh, seminar of Jaws and War, it would be helpful. Okay. Uh, I grew up reading Bill James, uh, going all the way back to uh, when he was introduced to the uh, uh, greater American sporting public through Sports Illustrated, Dan Oakwood article. Um, I was buying the baseball abstract series, uh, including his two historical abstracts in 85 and 2001, uh, and also his Hall of Fame book in, in 1995, six, uh, The Politics of Glory. Um, he, had, uh, so he had his own set of tools that he used to examine uh, Hall of Fame worthiness. Uh, when I came along in the, in the, in the uh, uh, winter of 2003 to write about this stuff, um, I wanted to update those methods, so I turned to what was then uh, Baseball Prospectus's then new metric wins above replacement player, a forerunner of the modern wins above replacement. Uh, what it does is it measures uh, or it estimates the value of a player's offense, defense, and base running. So we don't have to just pay lip service to those other things where you know where somebody says you know he he was only a 260 hitter but he was a great fielder or man that guy could steal 50 bases and you know it's like how do you equate that? This is a way of doing that. It's also a way of, of doing it over the course of uh, you know, nearly a, a century and a half of baseball history because you've got wide variations in scoring. There are times when, uh, in the dead ball era when, when uh, runs were scarce, and there are times in like the 20s and 30s or the, uh, the 2000s when runs were plentiful. They don't all mean the same thing. Um, so wins above replacement is a way of, doing, of, of equalizing for that. Uh, and I look at a player, not just his career wins above replacement total, but also his peak total, which I define as a player's best seven years. Because you've got guys in the Hall of Fame like Hank Greenberg and Sandy Koufax and Ralph Kiner who had short careers that made a huge impact. And, you know, going just by their career totals doesn't fully explain why they're in the Hall of Fame. So this, is a, this, is a, this was a concept that uh, Bill James introduced in the uh, original historical abstract in 85, and it stuck with me for years and years and years, and, and uh, uh, the Jaws metric is an average of the career on the peak score, and it's used to compare each player uh, to the Hall of Famers at his position, so we can see who is, uh, who measures up to the average, who, who, who helps to raise the standards of the institution, who, who would erode them if we were to elect them. And the idea is we should, we should want to at least maintain the standards, if not improve them, because there are mistakes in the Hall of Fame. Okay, so just, uh, just a question, because uh, a friend of mine, uh, who's a, one of the leading baseball writers, uh, an unnamed uh, great, he and I got a little confused about what's considered a okay, quote-unquote replacement, repla player. replacement player. Replacement level is a below-average player. It's about uh, the, the equivalent of your 25th guy who maybe just came in from Rochester or Albuquerque or whatever. He's replaceable. Um, the idea is that if, you, if you're measuring relative to average, you're not rewarding bulk. And bulk average is very, very useful. Teams pay a lot of money for average. Um, they don't have to pay anything for replacement level. Uh, you're paying the minimum salary. So that margin in there is very valuable. That, that extra, it's, it's worth about two wins a year to the average team. Um, and it's just a way of of rewarding bulk, you know, because if you've got a guy who's, who's, you know, one win above average over 10 at bats, that means nothing, you know, it's a, it's a sample size fluke. If you've got a guy who's, you know, five wins above average over 500 at bats, that means a lot more. It's just a way of rewarding, you know, a larger scale of things. And it's not the easiest concept to grasp, but, uh, you know, the front of this book, the first, I don't know, 30 pages are, you know, walking you through 
uh, the, you know, a crash course in advanced statistics so that you can become uh, you know, cognizant of, of, of how, I, how my mind is working in this and how I'm doing this stuff and, and uh, uh, sending you a few places for further resources as well. Okay, and one thing I just want to read before we get into some, uh, take it further, is you have a chart in here of the, not an average player, a quote unquote, the average Hall of Famer by position. Right. And I just want to throw the names out because I sure. think th this group and the podcast listeners will know who these guys are. So this is based upon, if my understanding is correct, based upon JAWS, these are quote unquote, the average Hall of right. Famers by the position. The closest, yes, the closest to the, to the JAWS, to the JAWS uh, average at that position, the closest single player. Okay, so I'm just gonna uh, go by position in the names. The starting pitcher is Nolan Ryan. Uh, relief pitcher, Goose Gossage. Catcher, Mickey Cochran. First base, Willie McCovey. Second base, Jackie Robinson. Third base, Home Run Baker. Shortstop, Joe Cronin. Left field, Billy Williams. Center field, Duke Snyder. Right field, Paul Wehner. So that's our average starting Hall of Fame team. Is that correct? I want, yes, that is. I want to interject one thing here. Note Jackie Robinson. Uh, Jackie Robinson's probably far above the average Hall of Famer's position, but um, Jaws doesn't take into account uh, career interruptions and things like that, like the color line and, and military service. And anytime, you know, the numbers are starting point. You want to bring context to that when you're when you're talking about these players. So, you know, the fact that the fact that Jackie Robinson is quote unquote the average Hall of Fame second baseman. Well, that's debuting at age 28 and playing exactly 10 years in the major leagues. So. Um, you know, had Jackie Robinson played 20 years or played even 12 years and the color line not been in existence, sure he'd rank up there. And I, I, I do some speculation in the book about how uh, these guys who missed time because of the color line or military service, you know, where they might rank if, if you know, all else being equal. Oh, and then you have a line in here that's in bold face type. So I just want to read that one line. Sure. Uh, since I believe it's the only line in here in bold face type, maybe yeah, other than some stats. It might be. Uh, JAWS is not intended to be used in a binary yes-no fashion in which a player falling short by a narrow margin should be barred from election. And I just wanted to point that out and then anything you want to add to it. No, I, you know, if all this was was a spreadsheet, you know, if all this was was about the numbers, I could have published a spreadsheet. Uh, as it is, it's 464 pages. You could crack a walnut with this thing. Um, you know, it's, uh, I want, the numbers, the numbers are a tool to help, to help, to help tell a story, to help illuminate, uh, you know, where I, where I think, uh, uh, that story should go. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a lot more than a single figure and, and I think people, if they, you know, if they misunderstand the system, it's because they're fixated on one number and, you know, there's a lot more to it than, than one number. Even just talking about a single JAWS, uh, JAWS, uh, score like an ATM machine, um, uh, is, is obscuring the, the uh, uh, difference between a player's career and peak totals. You know, just the same way as if, if you know uh, batting average or if you know OPS, you want to actually know the components of that OPS. You want to know slugging percentage and on-base percentage because players have it in different proportions. And if you know all three of those numbers, you have a better sense of the full dimensionality of their career. Now we'll get into some players, and I'm going to leave, I want to leave enough time for uh, sure. a lively Q&A. Uh, so I just want to go through, though, because uh, I think these few guys hit on certain areas that you can maybe uh, mm -hmm. shine a light on. Uh, the first is just a, a general comment. Uh, 
Lou Gehrig, uh, I'm going to deal with some first basemen. I guess it's a good place to start. Uh, Lou Gehrig, we had uh, Richard Sandeman here recently mm -hmm. about the, his new book, The Pride of the Yankees, the making of the movie. Right. So it's not really about Lou Gehrig as a ball player. It was about the movie. But we got into the fact of Lou Gehrig being this great first baseman. Just something that, that struck me is that Lou Gehrig has not played a game in over 75 years, and there is no first baseman who has come along since that time who is really even close to this guy uh, in many ways. Uh, I don't know if there's any other position where that's really happened uh, in that long of a time. Yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. I mean, uh, you know, I think that uh, um, he, a, lot of, a, a lot of the reason that some of the old-time greats are, are atop their positions is because basically what, win, you know, what wins above replacement is telling us is these guys were much better that much better than the than the average or the below average player of their time. The spread of talent was greater in 1920 or 1930 than it is now. So it's it's harder now for these guys to 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 uh, uh, accumulate quite the same amount of uh, uh, wins above replacement. But Garrett, I mean, the numbers just jump off the page at you, uh, and it's uh, it's uh, it's really incredible. And you know the fact that you know he's this tragic figure. Um, his career was curtailed, you still have these, these unassailable numbers. Albert Pujols, I think if he'd been able to maintain uh, the start he got off to in those first 12 years with the Cardinals, you know, might have gotten into the, into the picture. Uh, but as it is, you know, the Pujols that we're seeing in Anaheim is a shadow of himself and isn't going to come close to, to that. He's still number two. He's just right. a distant second. Right. It's, it's yeah. kind of like Secretariat and, yes. and whoever came in second. Yeah, most yeah. definitely. Uh, Okay, so then I, I want to move to another first baseman, and, and I'd like to get your comments about this. Uh, Tony Perez, he's number 28 for whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And just so I can be clear, the way that you describe each position when you, uh, you your, your sentence before the roundup, you have it the roundup, and then your first sentence is, the, the number before each player name refers to his jaws ranking among all players at the position, not necessarily those in the Hall of Fame. The average Hall of Fame first baseman, and you give the, those average numbers, Tony Perez is number 28. Right. And your first couple sentences, and I don't, I don't want to get into the actual statistical numbers, but Perez's claim to fame was as the Big Red Machine's RBI collector. The Big Dog played it at least 90 runs 13 times, cracked the top 10 11 times, but never led, and total the Major League Baseball high 1,375 RBIs from 1967 to 80, 116 more than runner-up Johnny Bench. Beyond that, Perez doesn't stand out as a great. And the reason I, I bring him up is, uh, and I, I want to go and take this and then expand on it a little mm -hmm. bit. Uh, the reason I bring Tony Perez up, when uh, Ken Griffey Sr. was here a couple of years ago for his book, uh, he made a comment, which I, I thought was uh, fascinating. He, it, it, it's called Big Red, the book. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's mainly about his big, the Big Red machine. He said, uh, somebody asked, like, who is really the key guy on the Big Red machine? They had all these Hall of Famers and, mm -hmm. and Pete Rose, who obviously was right. at a level of it. Right. Uh, he said the two key guys on that team were Pete Rose and Tony Perez. And he said, when the Reds got rid of Tony Perez, they thought that they would put Dan Dreesen in his position. And he, basically the numbers were there. Dan Dreesen put up the numbers. 
But all the guys in the clubhouse knew that that was kind of the beginning of the end of the Big Red Machine because Tony Perez was, was really the key guy, other than Pete Rose, who made them the Big Red Machine. This was Ken Griffey's, mm -hmm. uh, who I'm not going to dispute his feelings. He was in the clubhouse. Uh, so where does that come into play? Well, something like there's, that. You know, I can't measure intangibles. Nobody can measure intangibles. That's why they're intangible. Um, and that may well have been true with Tony Perez in terms of you know, the way he was viewed by his teammates. Um, what I'm responding to more there uh, when I'm saying he doesn't stand out as a great is that, you know, runs batted in are a team-based a team -based statistic. You know, if you play on a good team, if you've got, if you're batting behind uh, Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and, uh, and, and, and Ken Griff, or, yeah, and Ken Griffith Sr., you know, those guys got on base with great frequency. You're going you're gonna to pile up tons of RBIs. Um, you know, Perez uh, did not have uh, great on-base percentages. He uh, he made outs a lot more often than than you know than uh, uh, some of the other gr uh, great first basemen. His defensive value was fairly modest. He, actually, his best seasons, the ones that I define at his peak, uh, are are a lot of more spent at third base. He was a fairly competent third baseman before they shifted him across the diamond. Um, you know, and they were shifting Pete Rose all over the place. He started all-star games at five different positions. So, you know, it's, Tony Perez doesn't look like a particularly strong Hall of Famer. But let's remember, he is still a very, very good player. And, uh, you know, uh, the, um, when I'm talking about these guys, I'm talking about they're on the spectrum between very, very good and legitimately great. Tony Perez, to me, looks like he's closer to the, you know, very, very good I don't think I would have I would have included him on, on my ballot. I understand why he's in there. He was a huge a huge part of those championship teams, and you know he's got some World Series accomplishments too that, that I think help bolster those credentials. But um, you know I'm just pointing out that he, by our reckoning today, I think we would see him differently because we would be focusing on you know the on base percentage, the defensive value, you know the defensive value or lack thereof, uh, and not just the RBI totals. Okay, and then I want to bring up one other first baseman, and then I'm, I'm going to turn it over. I have a lot of other questions, mm -hmm. but I, I want to give the, uh, the crowd a, a, a turn. Somebody who ranks uh, quite a bit higher than Tony Perez, uh, who's not in the Hall of Fame, Keith Hernandez. He's number 19. And I just want to read your opening about him. Though lacking the power associated with modern first baseman, Hernandez was an on-base machine and an elite defender whose tactic of charging at batters, attempting to bunt, revolutionized the position. He closed off the right side of the infield, using his range and strong arm to turn sacrifices into force outs. And I started to, I have to admit, uh, he was always one of my favorite players. I love the guy. And to me, he's a Hall of Famer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just my personal opinion. But I started to think, who could I compare a guy to who completely changed the way the other team's <laughs> strategy worked? There are probably other guys. The only guy that I could come up with was a football player. Uh, Lawrence Taylor was the only person yeah. I thought of where he was so great, the, the coach was saying, like, just run the way, run the, we're gonna, run our the plays other. are going the other way. And here, basically, they're like, all right, that whole side, of the, that side is like, we can't deal with that, right. you know? To me, that's enough to, uh, uh, that's greatness. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a it's certainly a fair argument. I think you know when you look at the, the at the at the numbers for Keith Hernandez, he's actually he's he comes he's a what, what do I have him what do, what's the Jaws ranking for him there? Uh, he's 19, 19 and his yeah. Jaws is 50. 
Right. He's so he's he like in my mind he's a better he's a better candidate for the Hall of Fame than than Tony Perez is what that's what that's telling us. And we've got on top of the metrics, and I think I, I've got him as either the first or the second best uh, defensive first baseman of all time. I think Pujols may have surpassed him in, to, in total first base value, but but um, uh, he you know he unfortunately did not fare very well in front of the writers. It may have been the non-traditional power profile. It may have been you know the uh, the issues with cocaine you know in, in the middle of his career. Um, it, it, it may have been just just petering out, you know, at 35, 36 because of his back. Um, but I thought that he should have gotten a longer stay on the ballot and, and stronger percentages of the vote. Uh, the stuff like knowing, you know, as I said there, the that kind of uh, uh, changing the game that doesn't show up in the numbers, but that's certainly something we bring to the argument and could be enough to sway it. You know, if I if I had him on the ballot, I would have to think long and hard about about voting for Keith Hernandez. Um, to point out a few other guys that I would put in that class uh, in terms of change the game, you could point to, you know, Dennis Eckersley and, and Bruce Souter, both of who are in the Hall of Fame. Kind of the the uh, the ways that the usage pattern for, for closers changed uh, as they came along. Um, I'm not crazy about Souter in the Hall of Fame, but he also did uh, uh, pioneer the split fingered fastball, which itself changed the game a lot in the in, in the 80s. Um, Maury Wills, a very popular candidate among some people. Asked, I've asked a lot about Maury Wills. Uh, he brought the stolen base back into vogue in the early 60s. Um, really only has a few big seasons, that, so, his, so his Jaws is, is, has never been anything that gets him really a strong, a strong following among the, uh, uh, the analytical set. Um, but the, you know, those, those are some guys that stand out as, you know, in, the, in the change the game category, some of whom are recognized in the Hall of Fame and some of whom aren't. You know, I'm open to, you know, I think Keith Hernandez, if the, if the pace of Veterans Committee uh, elections were to have stayed uh, similar to what it was uh, before 2001, I think Keith Hernandez would, we, would be a pretty solid bet to get in there someday. Now, I think it's, 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 a, it's, much, it's a much longer shot. Okay. All right, so I have plenty more to ask, but I want to turn it over for our succinct, uh, well-crafted questions yeah, from our crowd. Uh, John? I remember, remember, remember reading in your book, but I forget the exact number. What percentage of people who play professional baseball since the beginning I don't know about professional, but major league, it's, it's somewhere about one and a half percent. How does that compare to other sports in the world? You know, uh, I actually don't know. I never tried to figure that out. Um, you know, Jeff Idelson, the president of the Hall of Fame, and Jane, Jane Forbes Clark, the, the, uh, uh, the chairwoman, uh, they, use, they throw the 1% figure around a lot, um, you know, in, in justifying some of the Hall's rules changes. And it's actually, when you look at it, it's closer to 1.5%. And that half, you know, it's, it's about 50% larger than, than, than 1%. Uh, uh, what matter, that's, it's a rare case of what mat, what's to the right of the decimal matters almost as much as what's to the left <laughs> of the decimal. Um, but uh, uh, I do a lot of uh, historical breakdowns uh, within the book to show how that percentage has changed over time. Um, it's decreasing uh, not only because the voters have gotten stingy, particularly the writers uh, from the uh, era late from the late 60s onward. Uh, really, just as expansion has has increased the number of teams, uh, the number of players admitted has not kept pace with that. Um, but also the flood of uh, middle relievers that have no real shot at the Hall of Fame. Uh, has increased the, the total number of players that we're seeing in this. Um, so there are some cutoffs that I use to try to get 
at those percentages a little bit more clearly. Uh, the chapter of rep about representation is, I think, chapter seven in the book. Um, and uh, it, it, it goes into trying to figure out like how many Hall of Famers we're seeing now and uh, what the right size for a Hall of Fame ballot should be and, and all kinds of things like that. Just a quick uh, follow-up related to John's question. I didn't realize it, and I don't remember the number, maybe you do off, off the top of your head, how few players are in the Hall of Fame voted by the, not the Veterans Committee, right. just voted into the Hall of Fame it yeah, was such okay, a low so, number. Right, okay, so there are 317 Hall of Famers, including the managers and executives and umpires and the Negro Leaguers. Uh, there are 220 major leaguers. Of that, it's somewhere around 80 or 90, like between 80 and 90, I think, are voted in by the writers, and the rest are by the Veterans Committee and its predecessor, the Old, the old Timers Committee. So, um, yeah, the writers have been, have been fairly stingy. It's, uh, it's not uh, a huge amount uh, by any stretch of the imagination. What's your position on the steroid issue? I, okay, uh, the diversion the, uh, the that I go with is you could, as I detail in the book, um, the, first, the first juicer was Pud Galvin, uh, a 300 game winner in the, in the, in the 19th century who is uh, uh, reported to have injected uh, uh, extract from monkey testicles uh, in an effort to reinvigorate his arm. Uh, Babe Ruth's big bellyache, uh, it's believed to be attributed to uh, him trying to do the same thing with sheep testicle extract. Um, uh, you've got the amphetamine users in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s before they outlawed it. Um, you've got uh, uh, steroids uh, in the game. Uh, Tom House, who caught the, the home run ball that Hank Aaron hit for the, to break Brave Bruce record, said in 2005 uh, that his estimate was six or seven guys on every pitching staff in the 60s and 70s were experimenting with steroids and said, we were doing drugs they wouldn't give to horses. So to pretend that uh, this was a problem that just came along out of nowhere in the mid-90s, I think, is, is, is ignorant. Um, the reason there was no steroid policy until 2004, or no policy with teeth, was because of this long war between the players and the owners um, you know, that, uh, that culminated with the collusion scandal, with the owners trying to, trying to uh, uh, hold down free agent salaries, and then trying to break the union you know, with, with the 94 strike. Um, to me, because of that complete institutional failure to get a policy together, I don't think you can hold the transgressions of, of the uh, pre-testing era uh, to the same light that you do the post-testing era. So I think that whatever Bonds and Clemens did, I don't really care. I really don't. Um, I'm not saying I, 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 that makes them angels, but um, you know, vote for them on their merits is, is my position. McGuire, my, you know, Jaws has, you know, to me, uh, he's a borderline guy. Uh, he's, he's, I could see putting him in. I don't think the Hall has to, has to have him. Sosa, he's a little bit below that. Um, the guys who tested positive, on the other hand, I think it's very fair game to hold that against him. Alex Rodriguez with his year-long suspension, which wasn't a positive test. It was a non-analytical positive, but there was a weight of evidence there. Uh, Manny Ramirez with his two positives. I think you hold that against them in a way that's different from, you know, just understanding that, what Bonds and Clemens and those guys were doing was basically racing up and down an unpoliced strip of highway where there was no speed limit. You can't write tickets for that. Um, since there were a couple of measures of war, did you find that some players qualified under one and not under another? I only have used uh, the baseball reference version of war uh, because for the longest time the Fangraphs version did not go back 
far enough for my purposes, and because the Fangraphs version of WAR, when it comes to pitching, using uh, uh, only uh, strikeouts, walks, and home run rates, um, is basically useless uh, for a for the a large swatch of history, because um, that presumes very little difference on bat, uh, for batting average on balls in play, when in fact that has changed dramatically over the course of a century. So, you know, it's it, it all comes back to run prevention and. I found it, it, it works better if you consider you know, all, all of it the pitcher's responsibility with some allowance for defense there, which they've built into the baseball reference version, rather than using fan graphs. I, it would be interesting to see if there are guys that, where there's a dramatic difference, not like excluding the pitchers, the, the, more recent, the more recent position players, where we've got, say, ultimate zone rating instead of defensive runs saved. Well, there has to be uh, MVP voting, like the Travis right. Rarick here. Right. Tom? Uh, gambling is was is a much bigger uh, detriment to the game in my eyes. I think that you know Pete Rose knew exactly what he was doing. That rule has been in every clubhouse since 1920. I could have written Pete Rose a PR statement that he could have read in two minutes, and he would have been back in the game in three years. I have a problem with gambling. I'm going to seek help for it once I once. Once I have completed my treatment, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to, uh, to helping others avoid the problems that I felt. You know, he would have been back in the game in 10 minutes. I mean, you know, and he'd be in the Hall of Fame. It's, it, he said he took the money. He said he took the money. I, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I, I think that, that to me, you know, there are, there are maybe some mitigating circumstances there, but I, I, I don't think he should be in. Tony? Um, you know, when you when you look at him in the light of advanced statistics, his numbers are not that impressive. Ebbets Field was a very hitter-friendly ballpark. First base.